So part 21, uh, moving right along, we're, we're getting towards the end of uh, Genesis 10 to 11, but we're going to camp out for a while uh, on these last few chapters. Really, uh, most of the last uh, weeks of this, uh, this, uh, this week, and really four more, we're going to be talking about this part of Scripture and the various implications that it has uh, for today, for who, who we are as, uh, as human beings. Um, so what we're going to learn today, we're going to talk about the descendants of Japheth. Um, we're going to talk about the descendants of Ham. We're going to talk about the descendants of Shem. Uh, and, and a little bit about where they went. But we're going to talk about the rebellion at Babel um, and how that has echoes of implications all the way down to today. Uh, we'll talk about God's particular judgment uh, for the rebellion at Babel uh, and the implications for today. Uh, the fact that there was a confusion of language and a scattering of people groups as a result of God's judgment at Babel. But first, let's take a look at what we looked at last week so we can set the, uh, set the scene really for today's material. So, um, the, the, all the people had come off the ark, the eight people had come off the ark, the animals had come off the ark, and then we get to hear a little bit about what, um, what happened to that first family uh, in the post-flood world. Um, and so we see that, they be, that Noah begins to farm, uh, so he, he begins to plant crops, and one of the crops he plants, of course, is um, grapes, and he makes wine, and uh, and then we have this one, this incident of Noah's, the, the one moral failing that we hear about in the Bible, he probably had others, but we hear about one for sure, um, and, a, and a very strange incident it is, and, um, and we'll talk about um, who did what, we talked about who did what, and what the, uh, what the, the punishment was. And then we get the end of Noah's life and the end of the Toledot there. So uh, we get Noah's sons named as they come off, and we get the... Uh, the specific in verse 19 that it's from these three, these three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the whole earth was populated. Uh, there's no mention of Noah uh, having any more kids after the, after the flood. Uh, and we hear about one grandson, Canaan, and it seems odd that just this one grandson is thrown in there at the beginning of this narrative. Um, so he makes, uh, Noah plants crops, he makes grapes, the grapes ferment, and he drinks and gets drunk. Uh, and then it says he uncovered himself, and it was inside his tent. Uh, and then Ham, of course, manages to spot his father uh, inside the tent. Um, and we talked about the fact that the Hebrew, uh, it doesn't sound quite so bad in English, but if you dig into the Hebrew, he, he deliberately kind of went out of his way to look at his father's nakedness in the sense of violating a boundary. Uh, and then he runs to tell his brothers about it. Um, and, he, and in the, the Hebrew context, it's, he's telling his brothers with delight. Uh, the older brothers, of course, are not, uh, they don't buy into this. They don't, um, um, they don't delight in their father's uh, distress. Uh, they go in there and cover him up with a garment. Uh, some, there's many depictions of this in old paintings. This is one, one old painting uh, depicting that scene from the Bible. Uh, somehow, as Noah wakes up, he knows uh, what his youngest son has done, uh, his youngest son Ham, um, and then Noah curses not Ham, but Ham's son Canaan. So not Ham, not the guy that actually did the, 
the deed, but one of his sons. Um, we talked about why that might be, that uh, the fact that God at the beginning of chapter 9 in verse 1 had already blessed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so he, God had blessed Ham, so Noah did not have the authority to curse Ham, to curse somebody that God had blessed. So instead he curses one of his sons. Um, then we've got, we took a little bit of detour to talk about um, this being one particular case of people trying to justify their own sinful behavior and try to use the Bible to do it. Uh, this attempt um, in, in history, recorded history, of people trying to use the Bible to justify slavery. Um, and, but, but they, of course, they, they don't get it right. They have to twist scripture to use it to justify sinful behavior. Uh, the first thing they, they do is they latch on to something that, that in, in history, uh, and some of you may have even heard this phrase, curse of Ham. Well, the Bible doesn't have any curse of Ham. Uh, Noah didn't curse Ham. He cursed one of his sons, Canaan. Um, and we have historical evidence from, talked about these, these, these pictures on tombs that the Egyptians made where they made them with anatomically correct uh, detail, including skin color. And so, and, and they had interactions with the Canaanites, and they depict the Canaanites with light skin. So we know from a contemporary picture that the Canaanites, the descendants of Cain, um, did not have dark skin. Um, and so, and they, but they did depict other peoples that they interacted with, um, for example, the uh, Nubians, they depicted them with dark-colored skin on their uh, pictures on the, on the tomb walls. And so they knew about people with various skin shades. They depicted them on the tombs, and the Canaanites, they weren't dark-skinned people. Um, and so there was no curse on Ham, first of all. The curse itself, there's no evidence that it had anything to do with skin color, but that was the whole basis of this twisting of scripture to try to justify slavery. So we talked about also, well, what does the Bible say about the slave trade in particular? Uh, Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man, and that the Hebrew is man steal, steals a man, man stealing. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So we notice that um, in the scripture, the, um, the, the, it assumes or implies that the purpose of the man-stealing is to sell that, the victim as a slave. And the punishment, it couldn't be more clear, the punishment is the death penalty for that. Um, and so that's what the Bible has to say about the slave trade. And so uh, when we get, you know, fast forward from Exodus to uh, the slave trade, the African slave trade, um, we, we get people trying to justify their sinful behavior by twisting the scripture, but the scripture is really clear on this particular issue. Death penalty for somebody who kidnaps or man-steals for the purpose of selling uh, that person. <clears throat> okay. Uh, then we talked about uh, the fact that um, what this curse entailed uh, to be a servant of servants, uh, and then we see these Canaanites then continue to pop up in Scripture. We'll see when we go forward in Genesis that the Canaanites pop up again. Um, and then after the curse on Canaan, we have Noah blessing. And the blessing starts not with an explicit blessing of Shem, but it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. 
that's how the blessing starts. Um, and of course the blessing starts with Shem, and that's because Shem is the line that leads to the Messiah. And there's also a blessing on Japheth, but the blessing on Japheth uh, is given, couched in terms of a relationship with Shem, uh, the seed line that will lead to the Messiah. Okay, and then we get uh, the closing of Noah's life. So he lived uh, 600 years before the flood, 350 years after the flood, total lifespan of 950 years, um, and then he dies. Uh, and we get the, the, um, the certainty that the curse uh, from the fall is still in effect. People are still going to die. Even though God has visited this great judgment on a, ma- a vast majority of the population, only eight people have survived, uh, human nature is still fallen and still subject to the curse, and so Noah dies. Uh, and that's the end of the Toledot. And so that brings us up to where we're going to start today, which is going to be a new Toledot. We're going to go from, uh, we're going to do the whole chapter 10 and the first nine verses of chapter 11, and that just happens to be the next Toledot. So we're going to do a whole Toledot. Uh, the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth goes from the first verse of chapter 10 all the way to the ninth verse of chapter 11. That's exactly what we're going to do today. Yes, Robbie. Question. Remind me who's the oldest of the three of them. So the oldest is Japheth, mm-hmm. and then Shem, and then Ham. And you can figure that out from various uh, parts of the Bible, although there are some, there's some little bit of ambiguity in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, I don't think it's really, I mean, if you look at the Masoretic text and you look at uh, the, the, the word for word in the Masoretic text uh, for uh, chapter 10, verse 21, uh, some of the English translations almost look like they're calling Shem the oldest. But that's if you look at the Masoretic text and go word for word, it's not what it says. Uh, Japheth is the oldest. Yeah. So Japheth, Shem, Ham. Okay, so uh, from a biblical view, uh, as a 35,000-foot view, um, we have in the New Testament, Acts 17, 26, uh, that God has made of one blood all the nations of men. So the New Testament tells us that everybody is related from one blood, all the nations of men that we see. That's in the New Testament. And then we see in the Old Testament, the, the sections of Scripture that we're looking at now, how that happened, how he made from one blood all the nations of earth. And so um, to, to step back and look at the whole picture, we start with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. Um, and then we see the genealogy all the way from Adam to Noah, uh, specifically in Genesis chapter 5. And then you have, coming off the ark, the eight people, the sons of Noah, and we see recorded in Genesis chapter 10 all their descendants for the next four generations. Um, and we get then in Genesis chapter 11, how did they end up scattering and uh, and scattering out in groups, in, in coherent groups. We learn about that in today's lesson. And, and so that's how we got to where we are today, with nations that have different cultures and different languages. All that started in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Uh, so we're going to take a look at how that happened. But first, let's look at who these people are. So uh, if you'll open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 10, uh, we're going to go through... 
um, these initial descendants, how the earth was populated right after the flood. So in uh, 10 chapter 1, we get the, the Hebrew word toledot, what came forth from, and what came, it's what came forth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the sons of Noah. Uh, and sons were born to them after the flood. So the them is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it starts with the sons of Japheth, the oldest. Um, the sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Medai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tirez. And then we get some of the, uh, so that's the, this, the grandchildren of Noah. And then we get the grandchildren of uh, Japheth, the great-grandchildren of Noah, uh, for some of them, not all. Uh, so the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Ripath and Togarma. Um, and we get the sons of Jamin, uh, some of the sons of Javan, uh, Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodim, Dodanim. Uh, from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. So we get a little bit about the geography, a little bit, very little bit about where these people went. But no explanation, of course, why they ended up going somewhere other than where they were. Um, everyone according to his language, according to their family. So... Uh, and we have no idea where these languages come from at this point. We won't get that until chapter 11. So, but they're separated into nations and lands according to languages and families. Um, and so if you, look, if you put together a little uh, family tree, this is the family tree. The names that are mentioned there in the beginning of Genesis chapter 10 as descended from Japheth. And so you can construct a little chart like this for each one from the Bible names that are given, all the sons. And then notice that only two... Of the sons, only two of them we get the names of grandsons. So there's a whole bunch of children there that Japheth had that we don't we don't get anything beyond just that first generation. If you want to learn more about uh, these genealogies in chapter 10, there's a great book called After the Flood by a guy named Bill Cooper, and Bill Cooper is the Table of Nations guy. Uh, he he goes around the world giving lectures on the Table of Nations. So. Genesis 10, this is his thing. This is his bag. He, he wrote a whole book on Genesis chapter 10. He does lectures on Genesis chapter 10. He, uh, he spent decades going through ancient manuscripts all over Europe and finding ancient genealogies that trace back to Jacob. And he's got a lot of them in there. And so there are people alive today that can trace their ancestry to Japheth. Um, and so lots of the royal lines for Great Britain and other places, uh, the Scandinavians, um, go back to Japheth, or go back to, to somebody that's on this list right here. And, and so what does that mean? If you can trace your lineage back to somebody on this list, who else can you trace your lineage back to? No. And then Adam. So you can trace your lineage, your family tree, all the way back to Adam, if you can trace your lineage back particularly to one of the royal families. And so, uh, for example, the English royal family can definitely trace its lineage back to one of these names here. Um, and there are tens of thousands of people around the world that can trace their ancestry back to some branch of the English royal family. And so the, for those people, they can do a family tree all the way back to Adam, which is pretty cool. And so this guy did all the research. If you want to uh, take a look at that book, and uh, if you're really if you're interested in this kind of thing, yes, go ahead. When you get to the apocrypha, they um, they often claim authorship 
um, that is pretty clearly spurious. Uh, but they will often latch on to a name that is um, that could have some weight to it. Uh, yeah. uh, then we get the sons of Ham. Um, so, and it takes a little while to go through these sons of Ham. Uh, the, the first generation is Cushman's reign put in Canaan. Uh, so Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. And then we get some of the next generation. Um, so the sons, sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Septa, Rehema, Zebteca. And then we get some, the next generation under that. Uh, we get sons of Rehema. Um, and we get some, this one son of Cush, we get some information about Nimrod. He became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So this guy was a famous guy. Um, uh, yes. So um, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a kind of phrase to say that, uh, that everybody knows about this guy, Nimrod. Um, so it didn't necessarily mean he was a godly man. I don't think so. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. It, it's possible, but I don't, I don't believe that that's what it's saying. Hmm. Okay, um, so uh, then we we get uh, the beginning of the kingdom. So these kingdoms that were established by uh, Nimrod, uh, Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, all in the land of Shinar. And we'll see that uh, land of Shinar is where these people clumped together and where we had the Tower of Babel. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala. So he goes around building uh, places eventually, uh, you know, after after the events of the Tower of Babel. Um, his reign became the father of Lud, and so we get another generation there for these uh, descendants of Ham. Um, and we get this little parenthetical expression that from one of these great-grandsons, uh, Kazluim, from which the Philistines and Kaphtarim come. So... Uh, we get a kind of an editorial comment that, oh, by the way, this is the ancestry of the Philistines because the Philistines will then pop up later in biblical history. Yeah, I think I think so. So okay. there's a, I mean, the the rebellion that we're going to talk about in Genesis chapter 11 is centered on Babel, and Babel is a city that he founded, and so uh, it seems to me that what the biblical narrative is saying is this guy's the leader of this rebellion against God. Okay. Um, He's a mighty guy, so everybody looks up to him, uh, but he leads a rebellion against God, it seems. I mean, there's, that's not explicitly stated, um, but I kind of infer it from how, the, how things work out, uh, how he's mentioned here in 10, and then what happens in chapter 11. Um, and so then we get uh, some of the descendants of Canaan, and so uh, Sidon, who founds the city of Sidon, and Heth, who is the ancestor of the Hittites, and, and also the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergesites, all these people that the Israelites will come into contact with centuries and centuries later are descendants of Canaan, of course, because those are the Canaanite tribes that the Israelites will come into contact with, the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites. The Arvidites, the Zemurites, the Hamathites, all these are descendants of Canaan. They're the Canaanite tribes. Um, then he t- they, there's a description of the territory of the Canaanites because they're going to be important uh, in further biblical narrative. The Canaanite extended from Sidon, which is a coastal city in the north, um, 
as as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, which is in the south, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. So this is laying out the area that will be Canaan uh, in the future. Uh, and those are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. And, of course, by this point, we, where do these languages come from? We don't know until we get to Genesis chapter 11. So this is a list of the named descendants of Ham. Uh, and so we get descendants of his from three of his sons, but one of his sons we don't even get any descendants from Put. Um, and then some of them get uh, a few of the next generation, but some of them we get several generations afterwards, uh, like Nimrod um, and Canaan. <clears throat> yes? Some of these guys show up, at least their names, like Put and Gog in yes. the previous line, show up in other prophecies and stuff like that. The yeah, Bible. they do. So, uh, well, yeah, so the Gog and Magog, for example, uh, yeah. show up in prophecies. And um, I'll show you a map of where either the Bible tells us or we have some sort of historical knowledge of where they initially went. And I'll show you where Magog's descendants went, for example. Is that a referring back to these people that came from these guys? So, um, in some cases, it's uh, it's a people. In some cases, it's actually more geography, uh, seems to be anyway. Uh, because, uh, quite frankly, when I'll show you where these people initially went, but... I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay, but... Um, of course, people eventually became mixed. I mean, people didn't just stay in these family groups. Um, they, they got mixed up eventually. Um, you, you know, just in our, our own uh, recorded history, you had um, the, the Greek people that came from one particular descendant of Japheth. They kind of spread out and took over the whole world at one point. And then you got the people of Rome spread out and took over the whole world. And then in about 400 to 500 AD, the Germanic tribes spread out and took over the whole world. Uh, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Franks, the Burgundians, the Anglo-Saxons, and Jews, those are all Germanic tribes that started in what is today Germany and took over the whole world. The Franks and the Burgundians took over what is today is France. The Visigoths took over Spain and North Africa. The Anglo-Saxons took over what is today Great Britain. The Jutes took over what is today Denmark and the Scandinavian countries. So the Germanic tribes took over everything uh, in the five, four, five, six hundred A.D. Um, so these people got mixed together. So we have some indication of where they, they initially started out. They come together in groups. They, but then, you know, life happens, and they, they spread out, and they mix together. And so you, you can't... If, if we were to learn our ancestry, each and every one of us perfectly learn our ancestry, we could probably, each of us, trace back to multiple people on these lists. It wouldn't just be one. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and then Shem comes last. Uh, and in this case, the one last is the most important. Save the best for last here. Uh, that, so that, that get, get rid of the ones that are, are going to be less important and then get to the most important one here at the end uh, is how it's set up this time. So uh, we get the sons of Shem, Elamesher, Arphaxid, Lud, and Aram. And then we get some of the grandsons and great-grandsons as well. 
um, down to uh, a guy named Eber, who's very important. Um, he, he lasted a very long time after the flood, uh, past uh, Abraham and Isaac. Um, and then we get a curious thing about one of the sons of Eber. Uh, the name of one of the sons of Eber is Pelig. And in his days, the earth was divided. We get this little uh, curious expression. In this day, in his days, so during his lifetime, in his days, Pelig's days, the earth was divided. Um, and so we'll, we'll get back to that when we get to uh, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, what does this earth divided mean? Um, and then we get another generation. Joktan becomes the father of Almodad and Shelef and Hazar, Maveth and Jerah. Um, and so we get some idea later on in the Bible about where some of these people went. And I'll show you a map with that in just a minute. Um, and we get this phrase at the very end of this section of Scripture that says, Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the hill country of the east. And so these were landmarks that were known to the people that Moses was writing this to. So Moses writes this down much later, um, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And he gives little uh, guideposts sometimes to where these people went based on... Uh, places that his original audience would have known. Um, and this is one of those cases there. And once again, of course, the sons of Shem are according to their families, according to their languages, according to their nations. And But we don't get, well, how did they end up in a nation? Um, but this is what it looks like, the named descendants of Shem. Um, and I've added some more. So uh, actually... We go down to uh, Pelig and Joktan, and there the descendants of Joktan there in Genesis chapter 10. And then later on we get, of course, much more of the seed line, the, the descendants of particular descendants of Shem that are going to be uh, important to the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, that comes from Pelig uh, in this story. Uh, and here they all are on one big chart. Uh, if you have really good eyes, uh, the people, the the people in uh, uh, kind of a um, brownish red there are the sons of Noah, and then the bright red ones are all grandsons of Noah. The blue ones are all great grandsons of Noah. The black ones are all great great grandsons of Noah. The green ones are great-great-great-grandsons of Noah, and the gray ones at the bottom are great-great-great-great-grandsons of Noah. So that's all the people that are named. And as I mentioned, it's actually Peleg who has the seed line that goes to Christ. Uh, so the man that's named here in Genesis chapter 10 that's going to lead to the Messiah is Peleg. And he's the one that in his days... The earth was divided. Now, there are lots of other people that were alive when the earth was divided as well. I'll show you a calculation. There were probably about 3,000 people alive at the time of the Tower of Babel. But we get only one is identified that the guy that was alive. Why, do, why is he so important? Well, the, why he's so important is he's the one that's going to lead to Christ. And so this book, the Bible, is about Jesus Christ. It's about God's plan of redemption for mankind in Jesus Christ. And so the, the one person out of 3,000 that's alive when the earth's divided that's identified is the one guy on that list that's going to lead to 
Christ. Okay, so uh, then the, the, it ends, the chapter ends by saying, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So this is how, the, the, these are the nations that were going to spread out. But, uh, and so here's a map of, in some cases, it's identified in the Bible where they went. In most cases, it's kind of been pieced together from other historical records where they went. Uh, purple on this map are descendants of Shem. Um, the orange is descendants of Ham, and the green is descendants of Japheth. And so notice that the descendants of Japheth um, are went to Europe, essentially, most of Europe, and also Asia. And notice Magog way up there at the top. Um, he's... Um, spread about as far north and east as any of this initial generation that we know of. Um, and some of those names, as uh, Doug pointed out, show up in prophecy all the way out into the book of Revelation. Uh, yeah. But it seems to be that that's talking about a general geography rather than a people group, I think. But notice that there's, they're already, even very early, they're mixed up a little bit because Philistia, um, is a, those are descendants of Japheth, and they settled in essentially the land of Canaan. And then later they, they actually move over here and become the Carthaginians, uh, the descendants of the Philistines. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so this is how they all spread out. Yes. Well, this is a best guess. Oh, okay. A lot of times there's, this is um, historians going back, piecing together ancient records and trying to figure out where did they go, okay, uh, so generally where they go. This is the best guess of where they all spread out. Right. I thought, and I thought, either because I thought it or I thought you said it, but regardless, I thought that the reason that the Lord came to them at the Tower of Babel, amongst one of others, but one was because... They had not spread out Correct. the way they were told to spread Correct. out. So at El Ashwelli, yeah. they had spread out. No, no, no. So this is what happened after the Tower of Babel. Oh, after. Oh, yeah, okay. and so I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in coming up in a minute. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that uh, some of the things that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 happened after Genesis, uh, Genesis 11, 1 to 9. They're the results of what happened in Genesis 1-9. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're told that they did spread out in Genesis chapter 10. We're not, talk, we're not told how, when, and why they spread out until we get to Genesis chapter 11. Okay. Uh, yes, good question. And anyone else before I move on from the map? So they can't go, the green guys can't go too far north because there's an ice age going on. Right, that's right. Yep. And of course, and for the initial at least 100 years, they clumped all together in Shinar in Mesopotamia. They didn't go anywhere at all, uh, at least the first 100 years. This is only after, um, you know, within, this is at least a century after uh, the flood, before they get anywhere, because they clumped together for four or five generations. They clumped together in one spot. Um, so let's talk about the Tower of Babel. Let's talk about Genesis chapter 11. So, yes, go ahead. Quick question on the last slide. Um, is there any correlation or like is there any 
which of these tribes multiplied more than others? Like, is there any? Well, um, it, it's it's a good question, and, and to, just to make a guess, it looks like Japheth is essentially the um, uh, the the <clears throat> ultimate ancestor of almost all of Europe and Asia. Um, and Europe and Asia is an awful lot of the population of the of the world even to today. However, I also mentioned that these people they mixed subsequently, um, in, including you know extreme mixing, like when the Greeks took over the whole world and the Romans took over the whole world and the Germanic tribes took over the whole world. Um, they mixed a lot, uh, but. The initial dispersion from Babel, it looks like Japheth had a lot of descendants. A lot of descendants. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that that was part of the blessing of Noah, of Japheth, uh, that he would increase greatly. There's a lot of north and, and east but there's not a lot of transition into Africa in this map. Well, is that because there's not a lot of written records in Africa? It could or? be. It, it could be. And so um, we we get some indication that uh, that Ham's son Cush went as far south as anybody, and um, the genealogies that do survive seem to put the the Nubian people as descendants of Cush. Uh, but we don't know a whole lot. We don't know. Um, it, it is, the, the record is, is very incomplete, uh, the historical record about what happened. after. So we get a little picture of what happened right after Genesis chapter 11. But, you know, how did the Incas and the Aztecs get to South America? Uh, what about the Chinese people? Um, you know, they, the Chinese were one of the first to have a, a really um, large and organized civilization. Um, but we don't have any record in the Bible about exactly who, which one of these the Chinese came from. Uh, most likely one of uh, the descendants of Japheth, uh, Chinese, Indians, and Europeans, uh, most likely. Uh, but it's still, there's some guesswork there uh, about who, who was it that actually populated part a particular area, like uh, most of Africa, for example. There, there are some signs of hand that we can we can put in the northern part of Africa but then eventually of course they spread south and we don't know exactly which of these people groups it was that spread south from there um, nor do we know which ones really spread all the way really far east into Asia and then across the land bridge into North America and down into South America and yeah something to add there just, just again speculation right um is the the land, the fertility of the land also would define how these people are moving? Like if they can't grow, they can't do anything there down south. Well, pretty much. that's true. Yeah. So um, it, it, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, I haven't really studied it. When when and how did this Sahara Desert arise uh, in the post flood? Uh, if if it was already a desert by you know two or three hundred years after the flood, then Obviously, nobody was going to go there because uh, you couldn't grow crops and you couldn't live, so nobody was going to go there. Um, but what they would have done is stayed on the coast so you can fish and get food and stay by the river. 
uh, and not just they, not just in Africa, but everywhere, they would have stayed by the rivers, um, because from the rivers you can get transportation, you can get drinking water, you can get all. So yeah, people probably settled by the rivers uh, initially, wherever they were. Um, yeah, good points. Uh, now, chapter 11. So if you'll uh, flip in your Bible to chapter 11, the first nine verses of chapter 11 are part of the same set of scriptures as ver- chapter 10. So chapter 10, all of chapter 10 plus the first nine verses of chapter 11 is one toledot, one section of scripture. They go together. And uh, Genesis 11, 1 to 9 says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Um, it came about as they journeyed east... So they journeyed, all of them, journeyed east from the the, the ark. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So that's our passage. So Genesis 10 and 11 are example of the literary technique of recapitulation. Uh, Genesis 10 showed how the nations formed from Noah's descendants and that they were dispersed, with a brief mention of the dispersion in verse 25 uh, with Peleg explaining that it happened in Peleg's days. However, Genesis 10 does not explain why or how they became dispersed. Now that we get to Genesis chapter 11, the reason for this dispersal and the mechanism, the why, is provided. Uh, This explains many things about subsequent human history, uh, starting with the nations described in Genesis chapter 10. So if we go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, Nine uh, one. God had commanded Noah's sons to multiply and fill the earth. They flagrantly disobeyed this command, and so God forced the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth to disperse. Um, so, the events in Genesis one to not, eleven one to nine are come before many of the descriptions that are given in Genesis chapter ten. So it's what's a literary device called recapitulation. So um, we get this idea that uh, the narrative begins by explaining the state of mankind in the post-flood world. Uh, And for all we know, the flood before the flood. Uh, There's no indication that there's any other language before the flood, uh, except the one. Uh, Notice that we get the phrase, the whole earth here. It's obviously referring to people, not land. The whole earth used the same language. The, the the, The rocks and stuff don't speak, right? So this is obviously, the whole, the phrase, the whole earth, then is obviously people. And so when we go back to Genesis chapter 10, and we see the phrase referring to Pelech, that the whole earth was divided in the days of Pelech, 
and it's the exact same section of scripture says the whole earth had the same language, what can we deduce? That that's not talking about dividing up land. It's talking about dividing people. The whole earth was divided in the days of Peleg. The whole earth used the same language. It's talking about people. That phrase is talking about people in this section of scripture. Um, the earth was divided. It's talking about the people, not the ground. Um, the many word plays involving Hebrew in Genesis 1-6. to I pointed out some of them, but there are many word plays with the names of people. And that would only make sense if the, the language was Hebrew. The language they were using was Hebrew. Um, so that suggests that the original language before the flood, um, and then, of course, the early post-flood, because there was only one family, um, they all spoke the same thing, and it, the Bible's very specific that everybody spoke the same thing. But it's most likely that even before the flood, there was only this one language, because those word plays would make no sense if there were many, many different languages. Um, so Hebrew or something close to it was the language before the flood and coming, and obviously for Noah and his family, and then all their descendants all the way up to uh, four generations in the Tower of Babel. Yes? Well, but, but um, how would the parents have known beforehand to name their, their kids something that was a Hebrew wordplay if it wasn't Hebrew at the time they were naming the kid sure. during Genesis 1-6? to and, and I would imagine... I'm just trying to think this through with you right now, uh, and that is that there's a, a potential that uh, other languages named Adam and Cain and Seth something different in their language. So po- possible, but the parents were naming that kid, and so they were obviously lo- lo- using their own language to name that kid. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the cool. language I've always wondered about. Yeah. This, so. Right? What I would say is we can make a, a strong, there's a strong indication that the people that are written about in Genesis 1 through 6, their language is Hebrew. It does not necessarily preclude the possibility that all the other people that were out there that were not this particular line that we're following in Genesis 1 to 6, maybe they had developed some other language, possibly. But it takes a special miracle of God to make the languages after the flood. Um, and there's no indication that God worked a special miracle before the flood to make up other languages. Um, so from all that, I, my guess is that there was only one language and it was something very like Hebrew before the flood. And then, of course, when you have only one family coming off the ark, obviously they speak their language. Uh, okay. Um, then the Hebrew... They uh, he it came about uh, indicates that considerable time has passed since the events of Genesis nine. So, at the beginning here of Genesis chapter ten of this Toledot, it came about that Hebrew indicates that time has passed considerable time, and it looks like probably decades of time uh, because by the time yes, well by the time you get uh, to this the events here at the Tower of Babel. There's at least four generations of born, because you have Nimrod, the fourth generation down after the flood. He's founding the city of Babel. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> yep, that's right. So this technique of recapitulation has occurred before. This is not the first time we see it. Uh, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, we've, we've seen it. Yeah. So I, I also wondered the same question that you were asking. Like the, the, the way the, the names were named 
Like if you go back to that big chart, right? Like Adam. It sounds like the word for dirt, the Hebrew word for dirt. Yeah. Right. So Starting all the way at the beginning. Yeah. Are we saying that after the Tower of Babel, the names, the, the, the way people were named were di was different as compared to the... Right. Yes, because they had, yes. After the Tower of Babel, they have different languages. So they're, um, in, in cultures where the, la the name means something, which many ancient cultures, the, the name has, has a meaning. It's, uh, you, it, it means uh, the one who does this or the one who does that. You know, it's not just, in our culture, it's less common to have a name that has a meaning. But in most ancient cultures, the names had a meaning. And so that meaning would have been in the language that they used. And up until the Tower of Babel, that was appears to have been Hebrew, something very similar to Hebrew. After the Tower of Babel, there's many different languages for people to use to name their kids with a meaning. But there's remnants in our language today. I mean, like Thompson. Yeah, Tom's Smith son. And yeah. Stuff like that. Yes, that's true. Yeah, Baker. Uh, you know, names like that. Yes, they obviously have last names like that have meaning. Yeah. yeah. The question is the. the the different languages other than Hebrew that were, whatever were invented or whatever God blessed them and so they kind of lost but only the ones that are Hebrewish. so uh, but other cultures the names mean things uh, like in Japanese to this day almost everybody's name has a very specific meaning in the Japanese language that the name means something uh, even to today and so I think there are other cultures like that I mean you can somebody can can tell me if you know for sure, but the one I know for sure is Japanese. The Japanese names mean something. Uh, kinuko means silk, for example. Kinu is the character for silk, and so Kinuko's name means silk. Um, so it, it, I think it would depend on how related the particular language is to a Semitic language like Hebrew. Uh, in some cases it may be, but I think that's pretty doubtful in languages that have no connection to Hebrew. That's my guess. So, kind of to support that, that theory, uh, is that not only looking back do we see Hebrew words in people's names, or similar words, but looking forward after the Tower of Babel, other nations have names that no longer relate to Hebrew. No longer relate to Hebrew, but they do relate to their language. They have meaning in their language. The name is not just a, a set of syllables. It's actually... Um, it actually has a meaning in their language. It's it's not nearly as common in English as it is in many other places, and it's and of course it's in the language that the parents use. Okay, good. A any other questions about that? Before we yes, go ahead. <clears throat> Seems like because of the wordplay, my guess is because of the Hebrew wordplays with the names that that was their language that they since they were using a Hebrew wordplay to name their child. That's most likely the language that was their language. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get to this event. We get to this place, Shinar, and so Shinar is uh, most often um, identified by uh, anthropologists as a place in kind of southeastern Mesopotamia, um, and so. Uh, as the next few generations are born, people move from the mountains. Remember, the ark comes to rest in the mountains, and the mountains is probably not where you're going to stay, not the best place for agriculture, uh, not, not the place where the river's right there. So they move to a plain 
where there's rivers and they can do agriculture. Uh, the people moved from the mountains where the ark came to rest and settled in the plain to the east of there, um, really the southeast of there. Um, and notice that they're not spreading out to fill the earth as God commanded. They're clumped together in one place in Shinar. Uh, that's what the Bible says. They all go in the same direction. None of them go west, none of them go north. They all go to Shinar. Um, and they start to build. Um, the Hebrew in verse 3 has a couple of word plays. Nilbana Bainim is let us brick bricks. Uh, that's literally let us brick bricks. And Nisrapa Lisrapa is let us burn to a burning, uh, literally. Um, and it's, you know, it's translated in English here, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, but it's let us brick bricks and let us burn to a burning, um, really literally in Hebrew. Uh, so a little bit of Hebrew wordplay there. Um, and so they're making bricks in a kind of a special way to make sure that they're very sturdy. Um, Southern Mesopotamia does not have stone that you could quarry, but it has plenty of clay that you could use to make bricks. Uh, and they didn't, notice that they didn't make them uh, ordinary sun-dried brick the easy way, uh, but instead they went through the trouble of baking them with fire to make them strong. Uh, they were definitely looking to make a lasting tower. Um, they used tar to put the bricks together, tar for mortar. Um, and then we see in verse 4 what these bricks and mortar are going to be used for. Uh, and also why we get uh, what they're going to be used for and why. Uh, they intend to build a city with a giant tower. And the reason is given. To make for ourselves a name, so for pride, and also very specifically to disobey God's command. Because the reason they're making this city of this tower is because otherwise we will be scattered over the whole earth. But what did God command them to do? He told them to spread out and fill the entire earth. So they're clumping together very deliberately to make sure that they disobey God. So for pride and to make sure they disobey God. All right. Um, so they, they, uh, the rebellion centers around this tower, which was likely a ziggurat, because we have ziggurats from uh, ancient Mesopotamia. We've also got ziggurats from ancient cultures all around the world. Aztecs built ziggurats. Um, Egyptians built their own form of ziggurats, pyramids. Um, and so it seems like this was a, a common building uh, architecture, uh, going all the way back to ancient cultures all around the world. Um, we have a famous surviving ziggurat uh, in antiquity. So it was surviving, at least in, in written history. So meaning that 2,000 years ago, people could still see these ziggurats. And there was a particular one in the Sumerian city of Borsippa, which is in southwest uh, southwest of Babylon, on the east bank of the Euphrates River. Uh, and it was known 2,000 years ago as the Tongue Tower. The ruins of this tower are still about 50 meters taller than the surrounding ruins, so like 175 feet above the surrounding ruins. Uh, Arabs and Jews identified the Tongue Tower with the Tower of Babel. So ancient Jewish tradition was that this is it, that this Tongue Tower thing, that's, that's the Tower of Babel. 
the Arabs named it Birz Nimrud after Nimrod. Uh, however, it seemed to be a part of a temple to the Babylonian god of Nabu, god named Nabu, um, after whom Nebuchadnezzar was named. Uh, the Akkadian Nabu sorry, means Nabu protect my firstborn son. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar's name meant. It was tied to this um, Babylonian god Nabu, and it seems that this tower was a temple to this Babylonian god. Now, it could have been repurposed to be a temple to the god of Nabu if it in fact was already there long before that. Or it could have been built purpose for that. We don't know. We don't actually know which is the Tower of Babel. Uh, that's a ruin uh, of a ziggurat, a uh, picture of one. Um, here's an artist's reconstruction of what uh, the ziggurat could have looked like. Uh, we have a written record from um, uh, a historian named Herodotus. Herodotus lived from 484 B.C. to 425 B.C., uh, so about 2,500 years ago. Um, and he wrote that he went through Babylon and he saw this enormous ziggurat that was ancient in his day, uh, 485 B.C. Uh, he described it as having eight levels, and standing about 200 feet tall in his day, in 504-something B.C., 400-something B.C. Um, and so that could be it. Who knows? Um, so there, there were, though, ancient ziggurats uh, that survived into the time when people like Herodotus were writing, that he could see a giant, giant, giant ziggurat tower in the 400 B.C. time frame. Uh, near Babylon and write about it in, in, in uh, historical records that we still have. Okay, so uh, they, they decided to do this, but uh, was there, were there enough people to warn a city and to build a big tower? Uh, we saw that Shem, Ham, and Japheth had a total of 16 grandsons. Uh, we assumed that they were also having daughters, that they didn't just have sons. That uh, typically doesn't happen. Uh, over a large uh, uh, sample size, you usually get this, about the same number of boys and girls. Um, but if we assume that they had the same number of uh, boys and girls, that would be 32 for the three of them, 10.7 children for each of the original, an average of 10.7 children, each of the original couples. Uh, the next generation for the ones we know about, 130 great-grandchildren of Noah, uh, and we can do a weighted average of uh, per couple for each of the ones that we know about. Um, and in two generations, that works out to 8.53 children per couple. If we use that birth rate, uh, weighted average for the first two generations, that gives us 554 children in the third generation and 2,365 children in the fourth generation, uh, one of whom would have been Peeling. Um, and so that gives us over 3,000 people by the time the days of Peeling roll around. Uh, so that's enough to build a city, 3,000. And they're all clumping together, and they're not spreading out. So it's 3,000 people together. That's enough to build a city. And that's a lot of labor to build a big tower. So uh, about 3,000 people is a good guess. for, And, and the next generation would have been about 10,000. Um, so there could have been 3,000 people that were kind of growing either close, either adults or close to adults. And, of course, they're still living... Like Eber lived 400 years, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, Shem lived uh, 600 years. So the people are not dying in the first 100 years. The, very, the people that came off the ark are still alive. 
So it's not like you only have the people from the third and fourth generation. You got first, second, third, fourth generation all together. And nobody's dying. Um, and of course, some people may have died, but but they're not dying of old age. Let me put it that way. By this point, a hundred years after they come off the ark. So in the fourth, by the four, fourth generation. Yeah. So, um, but that's plenty to make a city um, and to make a t- enough labor to make a big tower. Um, and then at this point, then they get divided into people groups, uh, as we'll see here in a minute. So the Lord comes down. So the Bible has an interesting way of putting it. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Uh, so it describes God coming down to see the t- tower. Now, God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. So he knew very perfectly well what was happening. He didn't have to go anywhere to see this tower. So what's going on here? It's an anthropomorphism. It's a, um, it's a figure of speech ascribing human actions to God. Um, he doesn't really need to go anywhere to know what's going on here. But it's an interesting way to put it. Um, it's because it emphasizes the greatness of God and the puniness of man by comparison. So man has vainly tried to build this immensely high tower and said that it's going to reach into heaven, and God still has to be described as coming down to see this puny venture. So that's the word picture here. Uh, That's why this anthropomorphism. So we're building this mighty tower all the way up to heaven, but God's going to come, he's got to come way down just to see the puny thing, um, is the word picture. So God evaluates the problem. Uh, What the problem here, he makes a twofold observation, and he describes the twofold results that will come from it. Uh, so the twofold observation is they are one people with one language. And the twofold results that God sees uh, are, first of all, this is just the beginning of their rebellion. And no sin will be impossible for them. So they're committing this sin by rebelling against God and not spreading out like he told them to do. And so God foresees that if they go this, continue to go this way, they will continue, this is just the beginning, they'll continue, and they will be able to, if they're, if they're able to coordinate and organize, they will think of an unending train of sins to commit. Um, and so God is going to, um, in his mercy, save them from that. And he's going to do it in a very peculiar way. Uh, So let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So once again, God is presented as going down to the people who vainly thought they could build a tower up to heaven. Uh, We also see another example. They're scattered kind of around the Old Testament of the plurality of the Godhead. God says, let us go down, the plural. Um, Who's he talking to? So this is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, talking about what they're going to do here to go down and confuse their language. So God takes action to help these people, to save them from themselves. Takes action to confuse their speech so that they cannot understand one another. And there are two main results here immediately. One is they stop building the city because they're freaked out. All, all of a sudden, they can't understand the people that yesterday they were all, you know, the foreman could talk to the carpenters, could talk to the brickmakers, and today he can't. They can't understand each other. They're, 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 they're babbling incoherently. 
as far as each one hears the other talking their own language now, and they can't understand each other, and it really freaks them out. Yes. So um, God's plan was for them to spread out, and they defy his plan, and one of the results of the, the defying of his plan is they have, they have kind of concocted this rebellion against him. And that rebellion against God is not good for them. Um, and so God in his mercy, um, he deflects them from that path. So God can see where that path would lead. Um, and he deflects them from that path. So he says, this is only the beginning of their rebellion. If they keep going this way, if they keep having one language, they keep organizing themselves, they're going to get more and more and more and more wicked. Uh, they're going to continue to rebel. They'll, keep, they'll be, continue to be able to uh, teach each other how best to sin more and more and more and more. So he does, um, he takes an action that causes them to go in another direction, uh, forces them to go in another direction, the direction that he told them to go from the beginning. Um, yeah, so it is an act of mercy. Yes. Well, and the first time man became desperately wicked, he wiped everyone out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, right, so, yes, the pre-flood world, we get in Genesis chapter 6, the, uh, the, we get the, the thoughts and intentions of men's mind were only evil all the time. That was what happened in the regime of one language, and God has determined to go a different direction in the post-flood world. Um, and he, first he commands them to do, to spread out, like he told them. They don't do that, and now he forces them to spread out. He takes action to force them to sprout. Yes? It's interesting to know that the man says, come, let us make bricks and do this sort of thing. And, they, and then after they did that, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And then God answers that by saying, in a few verses later, come, let us go down and prevent that. Yeah, confuse their languages, it's make them the spread same. Yep. Same words. Yep, it is. It's a very, it's a parallel structure there. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. I've always thought about this tower as a tower up to heaven, like they're trying to get out in the space. Um, of course, they didn't know probably outer space and all that kind of no. stuff. No, but but it, this, it's I, I, you again, Rob, have continued to help me look afresh at, at the Book of Genesis, and this is kind of an idea that formed while you were teaching that. If they really wanted to build a tower that was really, really tall, they, they would have gone back up to where the ark was and start at a higher place. Right. And it seems to me that the reason why, and this is kind of an extension for me playing Minecraft, that the reason why they built that tower was so people could get lost out in the middle of this plane. If you're 10 miles away, I can look and see that tower yeah. and find my way back home. Yeah. And also, uh, the, another implication you can think of is God had promised that he wouldn't flood the world again. But what if you didn't really believe God's promise? What would you do? You'd build a big t tower, really tall tower, that you could get up there and, and uh, avoid the flood if it came. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's real rebellion and, and not, uh, not trusting in God. God said to spread out. They, no, we're not going to do that. And, in fact, we're going to build this tower to make sure we don't have to spread out. Um, so, uh, and, of course, the result, they stopped building the city because they confuse their languages, and it would have been really hard to coordinate when today you can't understand what anybody else is saying. Uh, it's really hard to, to coordinate a construction project if nobody can understand what anybody else is saying. Um, 
they were scattered over the face of the whole earth. So God forced them to obey the command that he had given in the first place. Um, so um, there are some important results of this dispersion of Babel. Um, first, and some implications that you need, we need to think through. Uh, man dispersed after most of the animals. So this is fourth generation, uh, 100 years or so. Uh, they, the people have all stayed together, but the animals, God told them to disperse and they dispersed. And we actually get have a uh, um, record of animals being places. Um, and one of the results of this is in the post-flood world, of course, there still would have been lots and lots of mudslides and things like that and would have buried animals. But when we look at, um, at uh, animal fossils and animal bones, um, there's, there's always animal bones before there's any human bones. Um, and evolutionists say, aha, we see that everybody rose up from uh, animals, and you get animals first and then people. But from the biblical perspective, animals were out there in the whole, covering the whole earth, and there were no people there yet. Because the people were clumped together in Shinar making their stupid tower. Um, and they only came along later. And so you would expect from the biblical narrative that you would have layers of buried animal bones before you would have any human bones. Um, and actually, that's, of course, what we see. Um, all the main language families resulted from Babel. So God made a certain number. There was only 3,000 people. We don't know how many language groups he made. But he made language groups. Um, and since then, there has been considerable variation within these main f- language family groups. And today, there's somewhere between six and 7,000 languages. Um, so that's one thing that happened. So God initially made these language, languages that couldn't talk to one another. But then as people spread out, those languages changed over time. There were dialects formed within the languages, and the dialects separated enough that they had separate languages within the language families. And today, that adds up to 6,000 languages. Another implication is the various people groups that separated then and went off a separate way, each of those little families would only have had a subset of the total gene pool and and therefore would have attained distinct physical characteristics in the from the fact that they have only a subset of the gene pool. Um, and we see that, of course, in different people groups around the, around the world. So you're implying that the language division was generally within a familiar boundary. Yes. Of, you know, yeah. And so, yeah, I'll show you what the family, and we can still, we can work backwards from today's language and, and look at language groups, group, languages that group together with similar words. Uh, even today, yeah. Do, have people hypothesized that uh, when God confused languages, he also introduced genetic differences at that point? Um, I, I don't think he introduced genetic differences, but uh, from modern gen- population genetics, we see that when you isolate a population, you get a, um, and, and they in- interbreed together, you get a reinforcement of certain characteristics. And they um, and, and the family that went over that way and is no longer doing any interbreeding with this family that went over that way, they have a different kind of um, gene pool than this one over here does. And, and we see that in different people groups around the world today. But 
there's additional, it's much more complicated than that because over history we've had these people groups then mix back together in, in many circumstances, in many places around the world. Um, there are very few that are that are that have been isolated for thousands. One is Japan is a, is a major exception. It's an island, and they, had, they pursued a deliberate public policy of never allowing any immigration for thousands of years. Um, but most places, you have a mixing. Um, and so you had an initial separation. You had um, a, uh, a kind of a unique gene pool that went off this way and went off that way and went off this way. And, and through intermarriage within a particular group, you have the expression of a set of characteristics, a characteristic set of uh, maybe hair color, eye color, skin color, things like that. But then we've had thousands of years of history since then to have kind of a maybe like a reintegration uh, of, of mixing of our uh, human gene pool. Um, so it becomes a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, so languages. So there are language groups. Uh, let me. Uh, we only have. Oh, we have no time at all. Um, so, uh, for example, Romance languages: French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian. They have similar words. Germanic languages: German, Dutch, English, Scandinavian language. Similar words. Uh, Slavonic languages: Russian, Polish, Czech, Serbo-Croatian. Similar words. Uh, Semitic languages: Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic. Similar words. Um, However, it's not possible to trace back to a single original language. And the secularists are always trying to do this, and they can, they're very frustrated that they can never do this. Because they, get, they bump into boundaries where you go far enough back, and it seems like there are multiple languages that just will not fit together. You can't say that both of these... You can't say that the Romance language and the Germanic language came from the same place. Um, uh, it just doesn't work. They, they don't have any similarities. Um, so, but the account of the Tower of Babel explains that. Why, why we, we would expect that we can go back and make language families, but we get to a certain point, those language families are so different that you cannot go back to a single common language uh, because God miraculously made a whole bunch of languages all at once that are not similar. Okay, let me close this with prayer.